0: This podcast was brought to you by the new science of detoxification,
1: advanced approaches to phase one, two, and three support. For more information, visit biocidicals.com.au slash education slash events.
0: This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me on the line today is Justin Sinclair. Now Justin's a practising naturopath, author, consultant and lecturer specialising in herbal medicine and phytochemistry. He spent much of his younger years travelling and learning from different cultures about their ethnopharmacological uses of various plants, which led him to formal study in the complementary medicine field in his twenties and after completing a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy with the University of New England and a Diploma Level Studies in Herbal Medicine, Naturopathy and Nutrition with ACNT in 2002, he went on to study the Master of Herbal Medicines with Sydney University's Faculty of Pharmacy, graduating in 2004. Key areas of study in this program were analytical phytochemistry, pharmacognosy, toxicology, pharmaceutical technology and medical botany. He's published on the topics of pain management, herbal drug interactions in peer-reviewed texts, and he's held executive director and examiner positions on the board of directors for the National Herbalist Association of Australia, that's the NHAA. Justin has a keen research interest in medical cannabis for the last six years, in particular the endocannabinoid system, constituent synergy, i.e. the entourage effect, novel drug delivery systems for cannabinoids and terpenes, and the use of medical cannabis for pain, anxiety and immunomodulation. And I truly welcome you, Justin, to FX Medicine. Thanks
1: so much, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Now, we're going to be talking about a huge topic here, the responsible use of cannabinoids. And I think I'm going to warn our listeners now that we'll probably break this up into at least two podcasts because there's such incredible depth and breadth of information. And I know you're the perfect person to delve into this. So let's get started, huh? Sounds great, Andrew. So, you know, it's obviously a topic full of contention, legal issues and moral issues. Can you first take our listeners through what exactly are these issues and why do they make people so heated?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think the main reason for contention, uh, in my honest opinion, is pretty simple. I think it kind of boils down largely to ignorance and a rather large helping of misinformation that exists out there in the public domain. Um, it's an incredibly multifaceted, complex topic, you know. And when we start to think about this plan, it's incredibly uh, chemically, uh, you know, chemically complex and uh, and uh, has so many different pharmac- pharmacodynamic properties. Um, when we start to look at different literature, the plant itself has you know, anywhere between 400 to 600 different chemical constituents, wow. and only about 60 to 70 of those are belonging to these actual cannabinoid uh, class of medicine. So when we start looking at this over time, you know, in all of my years of studying uh, in the field, which is not as extensive as certainly other academics that are out there, it's, it's probably the most chemically sophisticated uh, and broad-ranging therapeutic herb I've ever come across,
2: mm. so I
1: mean, if, if I can just digress for a little minute um, to, to answer your question about contention, uh, I think if I can just take a, a quick stroll through cannabis history, that might actually yes. uh, set the stage a little bit for it. So, I mean, if we, if we delve back, um, can, cannabis is obviously recognized as one of the oldest domestic plants in the history of mankind. Yes. So, I think it was academics like Schultz and Merlin uh, actually suggesting that it goes back about 10,000 years. So that's 10 millennia, Mm. you know. I mean, that takes us way back to the the Neolithic period. But that's not provable. And so what we actually have hard data on is, you know, they found cannabis resin in tombs in central China, uh, buried with shamans, and I think it was radiocarbon dated back to about 2,500 years old. Mm. Going further back, we can actually go and see in in areas of Turkestan, uh, Turkestan, I think it was, in China, that hemp ropes and fibers have been found about 4,000 BCE. So whether or not the psychotropic effect of cannabis um, was actually going back that far, we don't we don't really know for sure. But what we do know in written evidence is that one of the first uh, places we see it was actually in the uh, pharmacopeia that was produced by Emperor Shen Nong in, in the TCM uh, histories, mm. and uh, that was about uh, uh, going back several thousand years. Uh, you know, the Assyrians have used it. The Indian Vedas uh, recorded the use of cannabis. I think they talked about it being useful as an appetite stimulant and also in cases of mania. Uh, you can go to India even now and, and, and get uh, cannabis from like that's bang dealers, I think it's called over there. So it's like a little drink that they make up. Mm. Um, the, the Greeks used it. Uh, Galen wrote about it extensively for uh, its use. I think that particularly with the seeds as being intoxicating. And basically, right through our entire uh, medicinal history, all the way up until uh, you know the, the European colonies and American, you know, right throughout Europe, the American colonies, all throughout, uh, it was listed in the United States Pharmacopoeia. Mm. And all of this, basically, for these you know uh, ten millennia, we've been using this plant for all sorts of different uh, actions, whether they're ethnogenic, you know, whether it's actually been used. I think that it's a fairly new term, this entheogenic term, which is, I think, literally translates as generating the divine within. So this is kind of that spiritual and shamanistic application, or whether it's just, you know, the, the fiber that comes from the stem, the food and, and the oil can be a or the seed, uh, the medicines from the triplant. I mean, this all has been going on nonstop for, for 10 millennia, and yeah. then suddenly in 1937, um, it stopped. And, and that's where things start to be I guess a little bit uh, contentious, and this is starting to set the scene for this contention. Uh, so, you've got 10 millennia of, of uh, humans using this as uh, uh, the, the diverse product that it is, and then around about 1937 in the USA, they passed the Marijuana Tax Act. Now, this effectively made cannabis. I don't like the term marijuana, mm. but uh, it's uh, you know cannabis is, is the plant's name, but. This effectively made it illegal to grow it, sell it, buy it, or, or distribute it. Okay. So the year before, uh, interestingly, I think the, uh, large kind of anti-social propaganda movie Reefer Madness, uh, actually came out. Uh, and that was where it was a, a pretty large-scale campaign, uh, basically saying how dangerous, uh, cannabis was. And that, uh, uh I think that did set the scene for, uh, negative, um, you know, well, not, negative uh, influence in public, you know, influencing the public uh, view of this planet.
0: Why did that I happen,
1: think that, though? Well, I, you know, there, there's interesting discussions out there about all, uh, all different types of, you know, some things are a little bit conspiratorial uh, and, yeah. and, and others are, you know, uh, whether or not they started to actually understand how excellent this plant was and, and uh, you know, there were financial or you know, pecuniary interests that. Stand there. I I don't know. Oh, yeah. I I simply don't know the the actual facts about it. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of different uh, ideas about what could have been behind that. But it started in that U.S. and then it, it kind of blew up from there. Um, so much so, I think it was back then in the '60s uh, there was a law passed. The Single Convention on the Narcotic Drugs uh, came into being, and that was actually an international treaty.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, so that prohibits the supply and production of narcotic drugs like opium and things like that. And the World Health Organization uh, put cannabis in there as well, so that placed restrictions on cannabis cultivation, uh, exactly the same as it does for opium. Um, however, licences and things like that could still be obtained for medical treatment or scientific research, which yeah. at least was a good caveat. Um, and then we go into the 70s. Cannabis has been classified as a Schedule One drug in the United States, and in Australia, of course, we kind of followed suit. And the Schedule for the you know uniform Schedule for the Uniform Standard of uh, Drugs and poisons, which it was back then, which is now the SUSMP, actually scheduled cannabis and cannabinoids as both Schedule 8 and Schedule 9 substances. So these were substances with high risk of addiction or abuse uh, or substances that were considered criminal or illegal. So you know, whilst it's nice to see just on a, on a side uh, that the SUSMP has recently undergone classification for certain cannabinoids. And moved it from uh, I think it was Schedule Eight down to Schedule Four, which is uh, practice, four, oh, sorry, the uh, prescription only. Yep. Um, I still don't think it's enough, in my opinion, uh, and that's largely just because I'm a firm believer in, in full plant extracts and full spectrum extracts, and that whilst some isolated constituents are showing some benefit in some of these studies, I, I think we're going to get far more benefit from our full plant extract. So that kind of sets the scene for where we are now. So the discussion, the original question, why uh, is it such a contentious issue? And I think one of the first points we need to cover is that there is evidence out there and a lot of public um, information suggesting that cannabis is a gateway drug, and I'm sure you've heard of that. Yeah. All right, so if we look at this, um, whether cannabis actually leads to doing harder drugs. So if I smoke cannabis, does that increase my likelihood of smoking or or, or doing, sorry, things like cocaine, heroin, Mm. methamphetamine? Mm. Now, there is some evidence in the literature, uh, to suggest that, yes, that could be the case. Okay. But as most of us know, at least in the field of science, correlation does not imply causation. No, that's right. Yeah. We need to start, yeah, we need to start consider other things. And, you know, there is a growing body of research actually showing that poverty and poor socioeconomic status is a much stronger predictor for progressing into hard drugs. So that's really. Oh, yeah, no kidding. You know, like, why can't they actually separate these variables out? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Um, then there's the other aspects, you know, uh, simply association with people that use hard drugs increases with the fact that you're using it. That's regardless or not of whether you've smoked cannabis before. Um, and then I think a much more important impact uh, or discussion actually is, is mental illness. You know, mm-hmm. so if you've got pre existing depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, um, antisocial personality, schizophrenia, um, these do predispose some people to use uh, harder drugs. Yeah,
0: They also predispose patients to chronic smoking.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's dependence, and that's another very important point for contention, which I'll certainly discuss, that's yeah. an absolutely uh, key one. Um, and then I guess lastly on that kind of concept of cannabis being a gateway drug is, well, we have to consider research which has suggested that criminalization and prohibition actually are real gateways to harder drugs too because if you're not making it available to the public then mm. they'll just go underground market, and yeah. find other things yeah. so I mean if we start to think about this um, I can actually give you some examples um, with, with recent legislation uh, changes mm. in the United States particularly where they've actually legalised so we're not talking about decriminalisation they've actually legalised cannabis such as in, uh, such as in Colorado yep. they've actually found that crime has not increased at all in those areas and it's actually gone down Um, interestingly also is that opiate overdose deaths have gone down as well. Now I heard a disturbing Uh. figure from a doctor just last week that there are 46 deaths per day in the United States attributed to oxycodone abuse. Yeah. So if we just kind of ruminate on that figure for a minute, that's a very important point. So this, uh, we can talk a little bit later if we have time for, you know, decriminalization and legalization, but. I think these kind of statistics and discussions need to be considered whether or not cannabis is a gateway drug at all. So obviously more research needs to be done. Then we get to another contentious issue, um, which brings us up to um, psychosis. Okay, so this is something that needs to be considered: cannabis-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to kind of think about this rationally and and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we need to consider, you know, things like individual neuroplasticity individual genes, polymorphism, you know, are there any pre-existing mental health problems, and also the phytochemical concentration of the different constituents within the specific strains of cannabis they're using. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just for example, uh, the tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the main psychoactive component of delta-9, uh, is, uh, you know, in THC, that's what that is, dominant strains now, so such as uh, one particular strain called White Widow, um, so through selective breeding programs, are far stronger than the cannabis of the 1960s. So, oh, really? Know, Even start, stronger hold, than the hippie generation? Oh, hugely. So oh, if right. we start to look at that, with these high THC varieties like white widows, some are reaching into the realm of actually about 20% THC. Wow. When back in the 1960s, it was literally around 3 to 5%. Yeah. So these, these high THC strains uh, do have the ability to cause dysphoria and potential psychotic episodes um, but if it was actually paired, and by, this, by pairing, I mean selectively bred in. So instead of just being pure THC, if we, we could also put smaller amounts of CBD in a cannabidiol, um, then what we'd actually find is that that cannabidiol with it will antagonize the Victoria. And, uh, and this has actually been shown in certain studies. So, you know, the CBD itself, other constituents within the plant will actually reduce the potential for psychosis. So this kind of, you know, when we start looking at single active substances like Marinol, uh, the Marinol capsules which have been quite popular in certain studies, like uh, I think they also call it trinabinol. Uh, And this is basically just the synthetically produced delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. They're not patient-favorite. Patients don't quite like them because the therapeutic action, you know, it just comes from one single cannabinoid and they actually start to get a lot of adverse effects. So I think as soon as we start isolating uh, we lose therapeutic potential. Well, how often have we heard that? Comes to the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 this is exactly why we need to get the legislation and regulation for yeah. these, uh, these medicinal cannabis products right. Uh, I don't think we need to, you know, just be focusing on single actives. We need to understand that the herbal synergy, you know, or what they call the entourage effect. You know, Herbalists and naturopaths know the concept of herbal synergy well. Yeah. Uh, one plus one doesn't equal two. It actually equals three or sometimes four. Mm. Um, so certain combinations of these constituents are going to augment and strengthen each other's effect. And when you're talking about, you know, or even antidote each other, like I've just mentioned with CBD and THC, yep. um, so the term that they like to use in the medical cannabis community now for this type of synergy is known as the entourage effect. So it's not just one constituent. It's an entourage of them that actually uh, exhibits this. And this basically supports, at least in my mind, whole plant or what we call full spectrum extracts. Absolutely. Uh, when it comes to, you know, we can still allow for standardization of major cannabinoids, you know, like THC and CBD, just like we do in liquid extracts and herbal medicine. We just don't isolate them, hmm. uh, and we can, you know, otherwise, we miss out on all sorts of other important constituents, like terpenes and things like that.
0: Well, I, I think the issue so, one of the one of the issues there is that once we isolate an active, we're talking about a drug,
1: that, exactly, and that's exactly what things like you know, Marinol, Sativex, um, Epidyollex, and things like that are. Yeah. and that does not mean that they don't have benefit because they certainly do. But I just, I, I really think it's important that we explore explore full plant extracts more. Because just in my clinical experience, and by clinical experience, let me just uh, explain that, I have seen and worked with patients over in the United States about this, where it is, Um, obviously not not criminal like it is over here. So it's not something I've taken part here in Australia, but I have spent time with cannabis physicians, dispensaries, and large amounts of patients uh, over in the United States that have used uh, uh, various types of cannabis. So that's just that experience coming through there. Uh, so yeah, it's. Uh, I just I would love to see the government actually explore that and not just explore single actives.
0: Mm. Can um, I,
1: so can we've covered. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Andrew.
0: I'm sorry, can I just go back to a comment that you made right at the beginning when you're talking about the historical use and the Assyrians used the oil. They sorry, they took it orally. So would yeah. you therefore be looking at beca- um, the use of CBD or cannabidiol? And the reason I say that is because d- is it true that. To be psychoactive, delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, delta-9-THC, mm-hmm. doesn't that have to be heated to become psychoactive? Is that right?
1: Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Um, and this is, this I guess, if we have time to touch on the phytochemistry in a huge amount of detail. But, yeah, the, the concept of heat and, and drying. So this is why if if you go kind of tiptoeing on through the tulips of a cannabis plantation and pull off some nice big fat inflorescence and eat it, Yeah. Um, it's not going to cause any psychotropic effect, and that's largely because the cannabinoids exist in what's called an acidic state. So, if we look at THC, for example, uh, this is your THCA. So, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid yep. is what it actually exists in the plant until you dry it and then heat it. Okay? So, what right. that means is that the tetrahydrocannabinolic acid has got a has got a carboxyl group, yep. uh, COOH group, attached to it. And basically, as you dry it, that starts to weaken the connection, and then as soon as you start to heat it, and, and uh, you know, various heats I think there are some that are talking about kind of the 120 degrees Celsius for 40 minutes or 150 degrees for about 25 to 30 minutes, and that will actually snap that carboxyl group off, and now you've got the activated delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which can bind to the CB1 receptor and yep. now causes psychoactivity. Right. So whether or not they knew about that back in the day, uh, we're unsure. However, they have found samples of hash, and hash is just the pure resin where the CBD, or, you know, CBD and uh, all of the cannabinoids reside. So I would actually venture and say that they did know about uh, the psychoactivity. I'd say they knew about it very well.
0: And indeed, the activity of CBD, the cannabidiol in the oil, is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, that that CBD is, is really only something that we haven't known about until fairly recently. I mean, mm-hmm. we're only talking fifty years, um, and, and actually, even less. Uh, so whether the ancients actually um, knew about the actual isolated constituents, well, that's a different matter. But uh, I certainly think they used uh, the, the full spectrum of the of the plant for different things, and CBD would have been uh, a, a component of that.
0: So let's, because we're there, let's briefly delve into cannabidiol and its actions. Because as you mentioned earlier, it tends to antagonise the psychoactive effects of THC. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things they said. So CBD has what they call these antipsychotic effects uh, because it can counteract the potential. Uh, psychotomimetic effect of THC mm-hmm. in certain individuals, mm-hmm. um, but CBD is just, you know, by itself, cannabidiol. Kind of it's uh, really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, excitement about CBD uh, in the uh, industry and profession at the moment because it does have all sorts of different actions. I mean, analgesia uh, is just one antidepressant action has actually been shown in uh, early rodent models. It's an anti-emetic. It's an incredibly good anti-inflammatory. And the thing that most of us probably know about it is uh, it's anti-convulsant or anti-seizure effect. Right. So they've actually uh, isolated uh, CBD. Uh, and this is what I think Epidiolex is. And they've, uh, they've actually used this as an orphan drug over in the United States, for Dravet syndrome. Uh, and Dravet syndrome, as you know, is a, is a kind of really, really nasty form of, of, of epilepsy to a degree. And uh, they've been getting excellent results with it. Uh, it's also got some uh, antioxidant, very powerful antioxidant effect. Um, it's been used for the treatment of addiction. Interesting studies coming out about CBD now are also showing, uh, benefit for, um, schizophrenia, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, more research needs to be done, but it's, you know, I think it's hundred milligrams of CBD has been used for that. Uh, and it's also got some antifungal and antibacterial action. So it's a hugely, I mean, just this one constituent. Has all of those potential actions uh, and so when you start to consider that in the full spectrum of the active constituent profile of the plant that is one of over 400 different constituents so now you're starting to, to grasp why I just get all hot and bothered over this plant because it is literally packed full of so much therapeutic potential it's just not funny.
0: absolutely so so you know reductionist Though it is, because we're only talking about two, if, if one of the main issues or, or possible causes of lack of effect in some early studies using cannabis was because mm-hmm. they possibly could have had too high THC and too low CBD.
1: Yep, certainly possible. And, uh, and this is where, again, we're, we're really only starting to scratch our understanding of the, re- the, the relationship and even more importantly, the interrelationship of yeah. all of these uh, constituents and how they work together. So where we're starting to see um, a problem almost is that by isolating, which is the, the scientific production of standard, by isolate, isolating and then studying everything that we can about it, we're just looking at the tree and we're forgetting the forest. Uh, and so I mm. think this is why I'm trying to encourage as many of those in the scientific community that I can to use the full plant spectrums. Uh, Because just what I see with patients is that that, that's what they go back for every time. They actually try the Marinol or they try different uh, single actives and they just get too many adverse effects. They always head back uh, to full plant extracts. And I think that's where the future is.
0: But but normal um, imbibing of this you know, herb has been smoking. That's been the traditional thing, and it's been seen, you know, as being bad for the lungs. So, mm-hmm. can you talk to us briefly about the different dosage forms apart from simple smoking? How do people use this, and for what varying effects?
1: Yeah, no, that, look, that's a, that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, if we look at things like uh, oral use, so I mean, oral use is probably the one that um, a lot of people use over in the states, and that. So, we're not talking smoking; we're talking about. Um, different methods of ingestion. So typically, we're looking at mucosal absorption. Uh, So this can be sublingual under the tongue, uh, because remember that uh, many of these cannabinoids are highly lipophilic. So they they absorb very, very effectively across uh, bilayers and and, and cell membranes. So we've got the mucosal effect, which is going to have an increased uh, kind of absorption. Whereas if you ingested it as a food or edible, as they call it, like a medicinal edible um, then that obviously has to go through hepatic hydroxylation, um, and in some instances, that hepatic cycling or biotransformation can actually make it stronger, but it takes longer to kick in because it's actually got to go through that process. So this is where we start looking at people that in, uh, ingest it, mm. uh, and then they don't feel anything happening, so they ingest more, uh, and they actually have a really bad time of it because yeah. they've now overdo You know, they've, they've had too much, so, uh, and they're, they're having a bad time. Yeah. So. Um, This is where dosage is is pretty darn important. And then we start to look at um, uh, inhalation. So this is where you've got smoking uh, versus vaping. Uh, And and so smoking, obviously, is is one way that's been used since time immemorial. Uh, There is combustible substance, of course, in there, which is not uh, seen as overly good for people that are needing this on a regular daily basis. So they've developed vaping, which is basically just exposing the plant material to very, very high temperatures, but not actually causing combustion. Uh, And what's really interesting about that is that depending on the actual active constituents that you're after, you can set the temperature in some instances on some of the more sophisticated vaping devices um, to actually just extract those things. So the terpenes you're after or certain cannabinoids, and you can set temperatures just for that. Uh, So you're not getting any of the, the... Negative side effects associated with smoking. So, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, oh, Justin.
0: So, so you set yeah. it to stun. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah,
1: kind of. That's pretty much it. Set phases to stun. <laughs> um, and then you've got suppositories. Um, now, obviously, here um, there, there can be fairly good absorption of, of cannabinoids through the rectal plexus. Yeah. Um, however, the problem is, you know, well, not many people probably want to uh, consider doing that, but. Now, uh, for some people, it actually works very well, particularly those that are maybe uh, paralysed and things like that, uh, or have problems with uh, digestion or absorption because they might be, you know, they might be uh, on feeding tubes. What about like a localized that.
0: effect? Say for you know lower back pain, or say you know colon cancer.
1: You know. Excellent question, and that's where you know whether or not it's actually going to be absorbed through the rectum, or whether you try and push it in a little bit deeper it could have very, very good benefits to things like the inflammatory bowel diseases, so things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And, um, wow. Maybe, maybe even bioticolitis, because it does exert a very strong anti-inflammatory effect. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, and then from there, from rectal absorption, we go to topical. Uh, and topical obviously makes sense because, as I've said, the, the cannabinoids are highly um, lipophilic. However, um, what we don't know a lot about at this time is, is its bioavailability. So a lot more research needs to go in there, but this could be potentially really useful. You know, I mean, uh, maybe helping you know, when someone's having say an epileptic fit, you can't put something in their mouth, you can't get them to smoke something, you can't get anything in quickly to them. So maybe this could be something that could be used um, uh, down the track as a uh, another novel. drug delivery uh, area to actually get into the blood quickly for those that are actually seizing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of
0: opportunities. You're bringing back to me memories of, of when I used to nurse, uh, and we used to yeah. have this uh, the nitroglycerin ointment or cream, and it was yeah. measured in centimeters. So you wouldn't give a milligram dosage. You'd give a dose of two and a half centimeters to somebody, Yeah, and you'd, you'd, and, and- you'd squeeze it out like a toothpaste on this ruler <laughs> on a pad and then just put it on their skin. It's really funny.
1: But I think that's that's um, actually a sign of where we're going to be heading to when it comes mm. to cannabis and and the reason that is is because you need to individually titrate the dose for the patient and this is where it's going to cause a lot of not problems but um, uh, a, a kind of a bigger educational uh, learning curve for doctors if doctors are indeed going to be the ones that are going to be prescribing this in Australia we don't know what's going to happen yet um, when it comes to legislation or moving forward but we need to understand that um, cannabis, uh, with that individual titration, with all sorts of different individual, uh, you know, uh, polymorphisms and receptor expression and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. No. So we're really going to need to look at individual dosage titration for patients, uh, and that's where uh, it, that's where it is in America at the moment. They start low, work up until they've got coverage, and they titrate it just for that. Uh, just for that patient, but so yeah, but you know not, they're even lots
0: to go. they're even looking at this right? for drugs like tamoxifen. You know, looking at different SNPs mm. and and uh, you know cytochrome detoxification enzymes, so that they can mm. see who will tamoxifen work for and who won't it work yeah. for. So, you know, exactly. I think that's just where personalised medicine is going to head. That's just it has to be it. Yeah, patient centred. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's not necessarily restricted to the endocannabinoid system.
1: But, no, not at all. Not but, at all.
0: What about decarboxylation used with cannabis? Yep. Tell me about this. This is something I'm not familiar with at all.
1: So, yeah, well, this is this is kind of an emerging field at the moment where, you know, what, what we talked about, heating the cannabis, mm. uh, decarboxylates it, and that activates a lot of the cannabinoids. So it takes CBDA to CBD. It takes uh, THCA to THC. So it, 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 it's an activation uh, of many things. But... There are some camps uh, in the in the field of uh, canna- cannabis medicine that basically suggest that raw uh, cannabis actually does the trick too. So you're not actually needing to decarboxylate at all. Uh, so ah. this is where they're just looking at uh, juicing leaves, for example. So yep. anywhere between maybe 20 to 30 leaves a day, they put it through like a wheatgrass juicer, which actually exerts very very little heat, because remember that heat is part of the process that can convert yep. uh, these these uh, cannabinoid acids into their active forms. Uh, And then they're actually just drinking the juice every day. And there are, look, there's anecdotal evidence. There's not a large degree of scientific evidence out there at the moment, but certainly clinical anecdotal evidence uh, that people with things like fibromyalgia have been getting benefits from this just from the THCA. So THCA uh, and some of these acid forms do exert uh, different pharmacological activities. Mm. So you've got these kind of two camps that are sitting there going, uh, raw is best. And then there there are those that are saying, no, you've got to decarb it to get the action and i think um if they actually take the time to stand back and look at things in totality uh what they'll find is that both have a place um that it's not that one is right or one is wrong it's what is right or what is wrong for that individual patient uh and this again just goes to show the complexity of the chemistry of the plant and its, its huge scope for, for therapeutic potential yeah so not everything necessarily needs to be decarbed or smoked or vaped or uh, you know anything like that it can actually still have application uh and far less um, psychoactive component because of course remember that THC is the main psychoactive. So when people sit there and say, "Oh my God, you know, I not you know," that's another contentious issue by itself. You know, cannabis, everyone's going to be walking around stone. Well, no, um, delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol is a psychotropic, that CBD isn't. Yeah. Uh, CDC and all these other types of cannabinoids actually exert no psychotropic effect whatsoever. But what we actually find is that some patients are using CBD specific strains, non psychotropic action yeah. during the day.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and they can still work and hold down jobs and all this kind of stuff. And then they get home and they're having trouble sleeping or they're having pain and things like that when they go to sleep. Uh, and they're using the THC specific stuff for that. So This is, you know, and and apart from that, I mean, we could even go down the road of talking about cannabis actually exhibiting a biphasic response anyway. So you can take, you can smoke cannabis, you could ingest it, and you can get initially this kind of uh, stimulatory, euphoric type of action, and then it can actually take you down into a more sedating or uh, hypnotic action. And this is all dependent on the strain. Uh, So when we start to look at the different species and stuff like that, you know, if we have time to discuss that, we can... Uh, certainly we'll flesh that out more, but that's the, the level of specificity that we actually have to give the patient when it comes to uh, this, this broad spectrum of phytochemical activity.
0: Yeah. What about patients who use CBD alone? Uh, CBD, yeah. What, yeah. What, um, so what, what sort of things do you use it for and what can patients expect in the way of results?
1: Oh look, I think when it comes to the, the CBD, most of it, most of the evidence that exists at the moment is for seizures and seizure disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where we're starting to see, you know, a lot of people talking about uh, various types of CBD-rich oil extracts that they're giving to their children, particularly children with things like, you know, uh, intractable epilepsy, and. You know, people sitting there saying, oh my God, that's so awful that, you know, parents are experimenting on their children. I need to be really clear about what intractable epilepsy means. Intractable epilepsy means that no pharmacological drug in the modern orthodox medical armamentarium works. You know, so these, these patients are trying mm. all of the different drugs. It's not working. So wow. um, what do they have to lose, really? And we're, we're talking about seeing, you know, patients that uh, are having 30 to 40, sometimes you know, up into the hundreds of focal seizures a day, going down to having maybe three or four in in a couple of weeks. So this is this is really where uh, CBD is shining at the moment in this kind of anticonvulsant anesthesia uh, area. Yeah. Uh, it also, though, as I said, you know, it does have uh, these benefits with anti-inflammatory effects. So uh, a lot of people are again taking this kind of during the day for things like maybe rheumatoid arthritis and and. Uh, you know, multiple sclerosis or things like that. Um, it also has really, really strong neuronal antioxidant effect, uh, and this is something that needs to be, you know, uh, looked at a little bit more. But unfortunately, uh, most of the focus for CBD at the moment is, is kind of wrapped up in, in seizure medications uh, or, or different types of forms for. Leases because it does work quite dramatically.
0: Yeah, you you mentioned before about you know the decriminalisation or forgive me the legalisation leading to less crime in certain states. What though? What effect would there be or fallout would there be about you know over usage? You know, uh, let's say overzealous usage and and so people being stoned all day. You know that sort of thing and loss of product productivity and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. This this is uh, kind of a I guess a larger social issue, yeah. Um, and not one specifically just tied to medical cannabis, of course. So, um, I've been to quite a few medicinal cannabis events over the years, both here and overseas. Uh, and and one of the things that's kind of interesting about that discussion about decriminalisation uh, is that it of course attracts uh, many of those who wish to just see cannabis decriminalised, but uh, or even made legal um, for recreational use. Yeah. And so you know this is. This is kind of a, a, again a bit of a contentious issue, uh, where some people say, "Oh, look, you know, I, I, I'm all for people that maybe need it for medicine, um, but I don't want people to be able to have access to it," and, and you know, particularly maybe those people that are a little bit more conservative. But um, already in Australia, it's been decriminalised in, in two states mm. uh, and uh, territories. So we've got, um, I think, I believe it's in the ACT. ACT you in South get, Australia. Yeah. yeah, you can yeah you can get caught with. Two non-hydroponically grown cannabis plants, so they've got to be outflow grown, yeah. um, or up to, but not exceeding, I think it is 25 grams of cannabis. Um, so this is just under an ounce. I mean, that's a, that's a, a fair amount of cannabis, uh, and all you have to pay is a fine of $100 within 60 days. So, you know, it has been decriminalized, but the drug is still considered illegal due to federal laws, but no criminal charges are laid at that point, Yeah. Uh, hence the term decriminalized. So. Why don't we see then huge amounts of people moving to Canberra? uh, I hear you ask. That are you know needing. uh, I could answer that.
0: I live there. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. No, I'm kidding. You
1: know, I lived in Canberra for a lot a lot of period of time when I was younger. It's a great city, Um, and you know it's great to see that they have these um, kind of open minded laws when it comes to decriminalisation, but. You know, why aren't we seeing huge amounts of families moving down there? And the simple fact is is that the amount that they're actually allowing, mm. you know, when I was talking about to you about, you know, maybe uh, a family is using fresh leaves yeah. and they're juicing, you need about 20 to 30 plants to be able to harvest those leaves daily to actually be sustainable. Right. Um, and, and depending on the, you know, you don't know what strains you're getting and the quality control, you know, you, you are allowing them to go down there and do this, but yep. they don't actually know what medicinal strains they've got, because I'm sure that the local dealer that they're getting it from may or may not be aware of that. So this is where this, this starts up a whole other area of quality control and quality assurance when it comes to good reproducible results of, of medicinal cannabis. Um, but yeah, you said South Australia as well. They, they were the first ones, I think. They decriminalized cannabis back in 1987. Mm. Um, and they were the first state that you know that did it. And they, I think they've got a little bit wider scope of uh, allowance. So I think you can have up to 100 grams of dried cannabis, which is <laughs> a substantial amount yeah, yeah. of medicinal cannabis there. Um, and I think, yeah, if you get caught with that, uh, it's a similar like of fine of about 50 to $150.
0: And they're actually quite um, a conservative state.
1: Yeah, which is interesting. Uh, and you compare that to New South Wales and Queensland, mm. which are, you know, it's still highly illegal and you can do jail time. Yeah. So. I think the concept of decriminalization um, does work, mm. uh, as evidenced by particularly you know, certain international countries doing so. Um, but I think the discussion is easily hijacked by those wanting recreational access over those that actually require medical access. Yeah, yeah. And you know, this kind of discussion that I'm more passionate about in the first instance is getting the people, the patients that need medical access, medical access now. Um, and whether or not uh, decriminalization opens up Recreational use—that's another matter. My main concern is just for patient care, and so I'm much more concerned about medical access.
2: But yeah.
1: it's a, it's certainly a bone of contention, you know, for many in the public. So, you know, as I said, particularly those that are kind of more conservative, they think it will increase people being able to smoke recreationally uh, when they might actually not be opposed to the idea of people using it for medicine. Yeah. So, kind of regardless of that, you know, I, I am of the opinion, you know, that out of all of the drugs ravaging society at the moment, cannabis is probably you know, the least of our worries. I mean, let's be honest, compare it to things like ice, meth, heroin.
0: Ice um, is just horrible. Or
1: or even some of the the legal drugs like tobacco and alcohol. Mm. I mean, um, when was the last time you heard of a cannabis smoker lighting up and going on a rampage?
2: Yeah. You
1: know, I think the only thing that's in danger, uh, you know, in most cannabis smokers' households is the bloody fridge or the pantry getting decimated when they get the munchies. I mean, um, (laughs) you
0: know. I remember an an old joke about, uh, what is it, um, um, random drug tests, um, and they, yeah. they'd they'd bring out a tray full of Snickers bars and Paddle Pops, and anybody who ate the lot, they were they were charged. But, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but <laughs> it's, it, you know, I love, I, I do it. It's it's just one of those things that kind of cracks me up, you know. Because I mean, look, when I was younger, I may or may not have experimented with cannabis, and unlike Bill Clinton, I certainly inhaled. Yeah. Uh, and I can assure you that you know, violence, anger, mayhem, and all those types of things were were pretty much the furthest from my mind. So. You know, I was too busy exploring the inside of my navel for two to three hours or sitting on the hood of my (laughs) car looking at the Milky Way. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne, um, you know, perhaps not the best example of responsible drug use I can think of or even clean living for that
2: matter. But anyway,
1: um, he he once said in in a Black Sabbath song uh, called Sweet Leaf that, you know, cannabis introduced him to his mind. Mm. And I think for many it does. Um, but that being said, of course, it's not without risk. Yeah, uh, uh, and uh, well,
0: the big question there is just like alcohol: the 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 reason of it or the issue of abuse is why?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if if, if we're going to start throwing statistics around, we can start looking uh, at the legal drugs and just how you know damaging they actually are. I mean, when we start to consider, you know, what is it in 1998? I think it was over 19,000 Australians are actually died of uh, tobacco-related illness. Uh, I think that's you know kind of obscene. I think we're talking about seven thousand five hundred people in two thousand and twelve uh, dying of uh, diabetic or you know, diabetes related uh, uh, diseases and these are things that are uh, highly depend you know dependent we do get dependent on them hmm. and so you know sugar uh, tobacco alcohol whilst they're legal uh, we're probably actually seeing far more damage uh, oh, to yeah. Uh, the Australian population, when it comes to morbidity and mortality uh, from those legal drugs, than we would ever see from cannabis.
0: Mm. But what about caveats? What's what can you tell us about the caveats of use? And and I should point out here that that medicinal cannabis use is actually being looked at seriously by the government now. And yeah,
1: and. and- and, so and it is fantastic.
0: I, I think there was talk once again to grow it in Norfolk Island, so that would be dependent on mm-hmm. if it passes through Parliament. But, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it could actually offer some economic incentives for a, a population as well.
1: Oh, look, I think that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, <sighs> what's going to happen with medical cannabis, I think, is a really interesting question. So, um, particularly regarding government. So, if you will pardon the pun. You know, the political propaganda machine really at the moment is going to pot over this issue. I mean, so far, <laughs> all I've seen up until recently is politicians jumping on the medicinal cannabis bandwagon, yep. saying lots about assisting patient suffering. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of doing. Um, so, you know, there was um, commitment, of course, by various states, which I'm sure you're aware to consider conducting clinical trials. Uh, and now I think this was a great step forward. But again, in my honest opinion, not spending tax dollars uh, wisely. Uh, and still not addressing access of the medicine to the patient. Uh, So I actually feel that this money would be far better spent, uh, and this is something I've been arguing with uh, uh, different academics on on the topic, in actually forming a a committee or a working group of of professionals within the medical cannabis community uh, and field from around the world in countries where it already exists in some working form. So I mean, uh, you know, everyone from growers to legislators, lawmakers, judges, Cannabis physicians, botanists, taxonomists, herbalists, pharmacognosis, pharmacists, the whole lot. Mm. Put them in a room, get them to discuss what has worked, what hasn't, what are the obstacles, and what are the solutions. And they can then provide a report to government that can then act on their experience. I mean, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. It's actually, if it's actually being done successfully elsewhere, but we can certainly perfect it, you know. And so the other thing that such a group could actually work on, which absolutely baffles me, is how about we sit down and do a literature review? Mm. I mean, um, a full literature review. This would take a hugely long time for cannabis because it's got over 15,000 papers attributed to it in PubMed alone based over a huge spectrum of different disciplines. Wow. But it does allow us to identify what we need for further research in and what we don't. I mean, this could actually highlight what conditions could benefit from mm. cannabis immediately. Yeah. You know? and thus start the process for getting patients access to that drug now. So, you know, it's, it's great that the, these uh, states are wanting to move forward with the trial for epilepsy, for example. But there are three studies that have already been done on this. Yeah. Um, and so whilst the positive result would benefit thousands of Australians with seizure disorders, what about those that have got multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or suffering from brain cancer or neuropathic pain or side effects of chemotherapy? I mean, they're still important, and that trial doesn't include them. So I think we need to do a complete literature review uh, as a matter of urgency, because not only could it actually save millions of, of, of taxpayers' dollars, but more importantly, we can identify very quickly what evidence currently exists for various conditions, and thus bypass the need for further testing. Um, I also question whether those trials that are actually looking at being done are actually on active cannabinoids, uh, you know, single acids or full spectrum, yeah. um, but I guess that's another matter. But then, you know, we we jumped forward now to recent years to um, that amazing United in Compassion uh, symposium, the inaugural medical cannabis symposium that was organized by that amazing Australian, Lucy Haslam, you know, she's a fantastic advocate for for sufferers of of, uh, all sorts of different diseases around Australia. And I went to that symposium. I had a chance to talk to Senator Di Natale uh, of the Greens uh, in person at dinner. And he was, you know, talking about putting together this draft proposal. Which involves creating a new national regulator that works independently, that would oversee everything from the manufacture, distribution, and growth of medicinal cannabis, keeping everything in a nice, neat little department. Yes. And yeah. of course, what we see this week uh, is the Liberal government wanting to put their own stamp on this process. You know, they've got different ideas. And that's where Susan Lay, I think she's their health minister. Uh, talked about finalising draft amendments to the Narcotic Drugs Act of 1967, which again talked about allowing the growth of cannabis for medicinal and scientific purposes. Which again is still fantastic because we can look at quality control. Yep. we can, you know, um, that's right. We can then not only start an industry that could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars to Australia. Uh, you know, remember the opium poppies down in Tasmania, for example. That's a fantastic initiative. Yeah, um, but it starts growing and delivery. You know, the sustainable, high-quality supply. But again, what does it not talk about? And that is patient access to the drug. Yeah. You know, so this needs to be the critical point of discussion, I think, at the moment for politicians and policymakers right now, is how is that actually going to work? Are they going to use medical cards for cannabis, uh, which, is, which is utilized in places like California? Who will dispense them? What conditions are going to be covered and included? Should all medical practitioners be allowed to dispense cannabis cards, or only those that have completed a course on the endocannabinoid system? And what strains or dosage forms are good for said condition? I mean, this, it opens up a wide range wow. of questions that need that need answering.
0: Oh, absolutely! And, and
1: quite frankly, you know, I think um, we need uh, some type of international working group. Uh, that the Australia that could advise the Australian government on policy with this because quite frankly there are very few uh, Medicos in Australia that have any experience practical experience uh, Using this plan at all uh, and, and, and that, that's the
0: fact so so just wrapping up, can you give there's, – there's obviously going to be caveats with use here. And as you mentioned before, yeah. there are going to be those people that want to use it for recreational use and they're going to abuse it and they're going to run into issues because they've yeah. got issues. What sort of yeah. caveats uh, – So, sorry, so I'll say to our listeners right now, this is not something that we're recommending for recreational use. This is a medicinal use. Um, of course. But what sort of caveats can you give uh, our listeners – when they or if they were using medicinal cannabis or indeed one of the extracts like particularly CBD,
1: it's an excellent question, Andrew. And and and, and finishing up, it, it's a pretty important one. Um, so the first thing that I need to make absolutely clear is that cannabis is not for everyone, nor is it the panacea that many think it is. Yeah. Okay. So I was speaking in a in a radio interview uh, with. Um, Uh, a really well-renowned cannabis physician, Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather over in the United States, and he's a cannabis physician practicing over in California, Uh, and he's also the president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. This guy's got extensive experience uh, in the field of this, and he was quite clear in our discussion expressing that cannabis as a medicine or even as a recreational substance is not going to suit everyone. And I must admit, I completely agree with him. Uh, And the reason for this is genetic polymorphism. Uh, particularly of the CB1 receptor. Yep. So truth be told, what that means basically is that not everyone's receptors or enzymes or metabolic pathways are going to work the same. Uh, and as such, cannabis will affect them all differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all met one person, haven't we, that said they tried cannabis and it just made them feel ill or sick and it wasn't for them. And this is probably because of you know, an example of this polymorphism, which is very common in nature. You know, it's related to biodiversity, to to genetic variation and adaptation. So not all of our bodies are going to be, we're not all going to have the classic cannabinoid receptor expression that others might have, and therefore cannabis is not going to work for everyone. So that's a really important caveat that needs to be made clear straight away. The second one is that specific cannabis strain selection is absolutely key in getting therapeutic effects, okay? So, limiting patients to just really small amounts of available strains or even small amounts of isolated active constituents, in my opinion, is going to limit therapeutic potential. Uh, So, we need to actively encourage and continue to encourage selective breeding programs that are actually going on uh, worldwide, particularly in places like Northern California uh, and Amsterdam, where they're selectively breeding uh, different chemical constituents into the plants for different um, uh, therapeutic applications. And then, lastly, uh, which is, is kind of tying into what we were just talking about when it comes to medical grade cannabis, is that there is no point having this discussion unless you can actually get patients high quality cannabis. Yeah. So quality control, quality assurance are incredibly important to therapeutic reproducibility so that that patient can go back every time, get the same strain that they like that is going to give them continued uh, you know, reduction in their chemotherapy nausea side, you know, as a side effect, or is going to be able to help them sleep, or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and if we're talking about different products, you know, things like cannabis oil, which we haven't even touched on today, but it's incredibly important to make sure, from a quality control and quality assurance perspective, that we can actually analyse not only for all the different active constituents and their ratios and profiles. But that's the solvent residues that they use, you know, because they mm. do use different uh, solvents, like uh, anything from naphtha uh, to isopropyl alcohol, yep. to you know, uh, uh, hexane and stuff like that, you know, which, which could be quite toxic. Uh, and we want to be able to make sure that all of that solvent uh, residue is gone. Uh, and so, I think they're they're really one of the the, the three most important caveats. It's not for everyone. Strain selection is key based on therapeutic uh, application, and quality control has to be brought in. And at least both the Greens and the Liberals are moving towards setting up legislation that will at least address quality control and quality assurance. And again, the thing that I'm mostly concerned about, which none of them are really tackling at the moment, Mm. uh, is what about now? What about now? What about the patients that are out there now? Why can't we start to consider? You know, a lot of groups are starting to push for a, a federal or state moratorium on people that actually have valid medical reasons. Yep. You know, but the thing that upsets me so much, Andrew, is that many of these policymakers have never seen a child have forty focal seizures a day. Mm. Many of these policymakers have never seen the, the, the absolute you know, the, the, the muscle wasting and, and, and pain and suffering that patients are suffering from side effects of chemotherapy. You know, they can't keep any food down. Mm. Uh, and and their suffering, you know that they. This really boils down to, in, in my opinion, it is a matter of compassion. Yeah. You know, and it's a matter of perspective. We really need to put some perspective on this uh, on this discussion, and we need to start thinking in in a community of Australians. You know, there's only what 23 million of us. We need to look at each other with a little uh, a little bit of compassion and understand that if there is something out there now that actually assists these people in improving their quality of life or what little time they have left. This needs to be a matter of, of, of great importance for legislators to consider right
0: now. Absolutely, hear here. Couldn't agree yeah. with you more, Justin. Well said. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we are going to do another podcast, and I think next no time problem. we'll delve into the phytochemistry, the pharmacognosy, that entourage effect, and we'll delve also into the other um uh, constituents of cannabis the terpenes etc and yeah, all of their effect on the endocannabinoid system which again will be five hours long
1: <laughs> <laughs> look I, I just just uh, in finishing I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to speak about this uh, and and as you said this is a, a contentious issue and by no means just uh, should I be considered an expert in this field there are so many people out there that just have uh, so much more experience and I literally feel like a novice uh, when it comes to it. But, um, you know, I, I you know, huge kudos to all of the people that uh, aren't even in the scientific community that are still pushing, you know, uh, patient advocacy and things like that. Lucy has been, the Lucy Haslings, the Carters, you know, the parents of sufferers that are out there doing it because they're the ones that have brought this to the public. Um, but thanks so much for, for giving me the opportunity to speak about this with your listeners and, and to even have the opportunity to go into a little bit more science in our second... Uh, Podcast but uh, I'm very privileged, and,
0: and thanks once again. And that again is one of the great um, things about you, Justin. That is your your humbleness, and uh, I, all of our listeners will agree with me and or uh, agree with me and disagree with you that you are indeed an expert um, in its compassionate in the compassionate use of cannabis. So I thank you for joining us on FFX Medicine. Thank
1: you so much, and uh, I look forward to the chance of speaking with you again. This
0: is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. We'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au.